Awesome. Good morning, everyone. Glad to get into God's Word with you. If you would, please open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to be looking today at verses 8 through 11, which are going to be uh, the words of Jesus to the church in Smyrna. And I hope that you're eager to hear what the Spirit is also going to say to us today through it. So I uh, want to remind you that these letters that came to the early church were for those that existed about 2,000 years ago in history, uh, particularly these seven churches throughout Asia Minor. But these letters are also for the church today. They're for those who have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying. So just double check right now. Everybody got two of these? Y'all got two ears? Good, good. So we know that uh, when Jesus says that, he's not just talking about hearing physically. We all, you can all hear words that are coming out of my mouth right now. Uh, hopefully the amplification's just right for your liking. But uh, we want to hear what Jesus is saying to us through his living word. Because when we hear from Jesus, our lives are radically transformed. And so that's what we do each week here as we gather as a church. We want to love Jesus um, and uh, we know that he loves us. So you guys ready to jump into this? All right, here we go. Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 8. I'll read down to verse 11. This is the words of Jesus. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this word, these words that were given to the church in Smyrna, Lord. But we know, God, that you are speaking to us here this morning. I pray that we would have ears to hear what you're saying to us as individuals, Lord, and what you're saying to us as a church as a whole, Lord. We want to be those who are faithful to you, in all that we say, all that we do, all that we think, even when there is pressure coming down upon us, for your name's sake, Lord, let us be faithful to you. Uh, we pray that you would be with uh, the church worldwide today, especially the persecuted church, Lord, for their faith in Jesus, Lord. And um, thank you, Jesus, that you know your church so perfectly. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, before we get to what Jesus actually said to these Christians living in Smyrna, I want to give some historical background on this particular city because when we have the history behind it, it helps us to understand with a little more depth what Jesus is actually saying here. So we know that this letter was written down by the Apostle John when he was exiled on an island called Patmos there in the Mediterranean Sea. And if you were to shoot straight across from Patmos to the mainland of Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey, uh, you would have arrived at that port city of Ephesus, which we looked at last week. And I shared about how Ephesus had this 
beauty to it. It was this big port that had a lot of wealth and diversity and culture and, and, um, and even religion all kind of going on in that place. But if you were to travel along the coast going up north for about 35 miles, you would arrive at another port city called Smyrna. Now, this northern port was a little bit smaller than Ephesus, and it was much more beautiful. You know, sometimes when things are smaller, you know, it, it kind of has that more natural beauty. Like, even in California, we're a big port city here in Los Angeles, but you go up north to one of those smaller ports, you know, there's this, this beauty to it. And that's kind of how it was with Smyrna. Smyrna had a lot of culture and religion as well. And they also had a lot of trade coming through that place. There was, however, much more finer commodities that were coming out of Smyrna. For instance, wine and fragrances were made and sold there. And actually, the city came, the, the name of the city came from its production of a particular fragrance called myrrh. And we know that myrrh is this fragrant sap or resin that was often used in the ancient world to embalm dead bodies. If you remember, it was even one of the three gifts that were brought to Jesus at his birth, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, each one having a different meaning to it, right, and myrrh being that of death. We know that even when Jesus died, his body was wrapped in myrrh uh, there by um, his disciples, and so Smyrna, like Ephesus, was very wealthy, very diverse, very religious, but to this whole other degree. And at one point in its history, Smyrna was completely leveled by an earthquake, and it laid in ruins for many years. People wondered if it would ever sort of come back to its former beauty until a man by the name of Alexander the Great came along and decided that he was going to rebuild, or should I say, resurrect this city. And he would do it according to his masterful uh, planning, city planning. And so it had these wide streets and these tall buildings that were well-designed and well-built. And if you were to look at Smyrna from up above, there was this mountain there in the city called Mount Pagos, and there were these temples that circled around the top of this mountain. So from up above, it looked like a beautiful crown. And that's even what they called Smyrna in the ancient world. They called it the crown of Asia. Now remember all these things as we're going to be getting to the things that Jesus will say. There was also this competition at one point with Rome. Rome was sort of the uh, dominant superpower of the day. And there were 11 cities that were chosen in a contest for a new location for a temple that would be dedicated to Caesar, where the spirit of Rome could be worshipped. And Smyrna won that contest, and it became sort of the epicenter of Caesar worship in Asia Minor. But this temple to Caesar was just one of the many religious temples there in that city. There was actually a street called Golden Street where it was like a downtown strip in Smyrna where you could go and find temples lined one after another to gods like Apollo or Asclepios or Aphrodite and Zeus. And so Smyrna, right, just was this city that just was bursting with this, this religious Center and, 
And yet Smyrna also had a very close relationship with Rome. They had deep political ties. The Romans, as I said, were the political superpower of the day, and they ruled over this city as one of its provinces. And Smyrna became sort of the prized example of what Rome could do for a city that would be submitted to their political rule. But what started out in Smyrna as just mere political alliance or allegiance to Rome, it turned rather quickly to a form of religious worship. At first, Rome just sort of wanted the people to praise the spirit of Rome. But then next, they wanted the people to honor those Caesars that had died. They wanted to honor Rome. But eventually, Rome wanted the people to worship the living Caesars. Do you know what they called the Caesar of Rome? They called him Lord. Now, at that time in Smyrna, there were many different religions, many different gods that you could choose from. You could walk up and down the street and choose your favorite temple like you're choosing your favorite fast food restaurant. And that's sort of the context in which these words come to the Christians living in Smyrna. But before we keep going, let me take us a little further into this whole thing about worshiping Caesar as Lord. It, it started out as voluntary. You could choose whether you wanted to worship Caesar or not. But eventually that changed where Rome came to a point where they were commanding all of its citizens to worship Caesar as Lord. And to make sure that everyone worshiped Caesar, all the people would have to come yearly to his temple. And what they would do is they would offer a pinch of incense upon his altar and just say three words, Caesar is Lord. And there would even be a person there that would see the person offering the incense and saying those words, and they would be given a certificate that would show that they worshipped Caesar. And look, after you'd worship Caesar, once you had you know, your certificate, you can go and worship any other god that you wished. Rome was like, we're cool if you want to go out and worship Asclepios or Aphrodite or Zeus, but you first have to come and worship Caesar as Lord. Now, there were some exemptions of worship given to certain people, and there was one group of people who were exempt from worshiping Caesar. Who do you think those people were? I'll tell you, was it wasn't the Christians? It was the Jews. Because Rome had enough brains, and they knew enough history that you don't mess with Jews in their worship. I mean, you know that, right? You've read your Bible? It's funny, people still in this much history past don't understand that yet. So the Jews had this exemption, and we know that Christianity came out from Judaism. Christians believe in the God of Israel, in Yahweh, the one true God. Yet Christians believe, right, that God, Yahweh, sent forth his son, Jesus, to be the Messiah, to be our Lord and Savior. But of course, we know that many of the Jews didn't feel the same way about Jesus. They didn't consider him their Messiah, much less their Lord. There was one Lord over Israel, the hero Israel, our Lord our God is one, right? And so here's the situation that came about. Because Christians believe that there's one Lord, 
and then believe that it's Jesus Christ. Christians have an allegiance to him that is to him alone. They wouldn't call Caesar Lord. They weren't going to come and offer a pinch of incense upon his altar to worship another god. No, there was one altar, and it was the cross, and they decided to follow Jesus as their one Lord and one Savior, Jesus Christ. And so some Christians, what they were doing at that time was they were wanting to come under the covering of the Jewish synagogue. You know, since the Jewish synagogue was exempt from worshiping Caesar as Lord, then these Christians, you know, we had come out of the synagogue. We'll just come under them, and we can still worship Jesus, but sort of be under under their exemption. But the Jews didn't allow the Christians to do that. In fact, they began to persecute them and slander them and even partnered with Rome to turn people in for not worshiping Caesar. They, they saw it as a way that, you know, we could sort of get rid of this whole gospel, this whole Jesus is Lord thing, and the Christians will just all go away. And so that was the situation that the church in Smyrna was facing at the time. They were living under intense political and religious pressures. The religious Jews were saying that, you know, you can't be protected by us if you're going to call Jesus Lord, because we Jews don't believe that Jesus is Lord. But, but they did offer this. They said, you know what? If you just leave Jesus and this whole gospel thing behind, and you come back to Judaism, come back to the observances of the law, and, 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 and just leave Jesus and this whole church thing that you got into, leave that behind, come back to Judaism, then we're all good. We just finished the book of Hebrews, and we know what warnings were given to that. Certainly, there may have been some who chose that and did that, but those who really loved Jesus would not. And so that was the religious pressure they were facing. But then they also had the political Romans saying, you know, you can worship Jesus as Lord. We're fine with that. But first, you have to worship Caesar as Lord. And, and, you know, just, just offer Caesar one little pinch of incense and say, he's Lord and we're all good. And then you can go back to worshiping whoever you want to worship. But the Christians would not do that either. And so you could see there was tremendous pressure upon the church in this time. Because Christians would not deny Jesus as Lord to align with the Jews. And because Christians would not worship Caesar as Lord to align with Rome, Christians in Smyrna were facing persecution from two directions. Persecution from religious Jews and persecution from political Rome. Now question, who else do we know was persecuted by both religious Jews and political Rome? Anyone? Jesus, Jesus, our Lord, went through the same exact thing when he was upon the earth. That's why he was crucified. Now, let's then consider what Jesus might have to say about all this. If he's gone through that, and if he sees this church going through that, then maybe he has something that he might be able to say to them. And as we go through this letter, I want to remind you that there's somewhat of a basic structure to all of the seven letters. First, Jesus introduces each letter by addressing the letter to the angel of that church. Second, then Jesus gives a revelation of himself, some attribute that's going to be relevant to what 
the Christians in the city were going through. Then third, Jesus gives them a commendation, some sort of encouragement, something they were doing well in. And then fourth, Jesus gives them a correction, something that the church needed to repent of. But the unique thing about the letter that was to the church in Smyrna and also the case with the church to Philadelphia is that there was no correction. There was only commendation for what they were going through. And I believe the reason for that is because suffering and persecution has a way of refining us taking the things out of our life, like the dross of the refiner's fire comes off and, and the things that, that, that often are in our lives because of ease and comforts, those sins that Jesus might need to correct, they're not there because of what we may endure through suffering. And so finally then, Jesus gives a exhortation or promise to those who would hear these messages. So here we go in verse 8. This letter is addressed to the church, and Jesus is then introduced. You guys ready for it? All right. All that context is now going to help us as we dive into these verses. It says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. So last week I shared a little bit about who this angel is. Um, it is the word angelos, it simply means messenger, and there's two main views. It could either be this sort of heavenly angelic being that would be like a guardian angel over the church, or it could just refer to the elder, the pastor of the church, and I tend to lean toward that view. But if you recall, the big thing we want to see is that Jesus holds the angels of the churches in his right hand. We are under his authority. We are in his grip. And Jesus walks in the midst of the churches and knows everything that is going on in each and every church, even in this church today. We know that Jesus is the head of the church. He is the chief shepherd. He's the senior pastor of the church. It's important that we would never lose sight of that from Jesus. But then Jesus also shares a title of himself, a attribute of Christ that is going to then relate to what Smyrna was going through. We know, as I just explained to you, that this church was going through persecution. They were even about to face martyrdom, where they would be put to death for their faith in Jesus. And so Jesus says, these words that are coming to you, they're coming from me, the crucified and risen and exalted Lord these are the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Jesus being the first and the last here is speaking about his eternal nature. You know, in another place in Revelation 1, Jesus is called the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, and omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. So Jesus is, in a sense, saying, I am the A to Z. I am the beginning to the end. I am the first and the last. Nothing comes before me, and nothing comes after me. Jesus is the bookends of creation because he is eternal God. Because nothing comes before him, it means he's eternal. Because nothing comes after him, he is eternal. And this is such a great quality, amen, that we want to know about Jesus. 
He has no beginning and no end. However, we also know this about Jesus. While he is eternal God, Jesus also decided that at a certain point in history, he would become a human being. And so Jesus, the eternal God, had a date of birth and a date of death. Jesus became a living human being. Theologically speaking, we would say that Jesus added humanity to his deity. He did not stop being God when he became a man. He merely added to his divine nature also a human nature, and he did that so that he could do the work of salvation, which was to die on a cross and be risen from the dead, which brings us right to the next thing. This exalted, risen, glorified Christ is saying to this church, remember that I died and came to life. Now this attribute of Jesus would have brought tremendous comfort to the believers in Smyrna. Because we know that if we're in Christ, we're united with him in all things, which means that if we die, we die with him. And if he raised from the dead, then we will be raised from the dead with him. They trusted that by believing in Jesus, that Jesus took the sting of death away. He conquered death when he died. We clearly understand from Scripture that when a follower of Jesus dies, that is the entry point into resurrection life. And so his title would have brought a lot of comfort to these suffering believers in Smyrna. Then Jesus tells them what he knows. Verses 9 through 10, this is where he really really gets in there and commends them, encourages them for the things that they're doing. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Now look, when Jesus says, I know... Of course he knows because he's God, but we tend to think of it as though, you know, if he's walking in the midst of the lampstands and he's this all-knowing, omniscient God, then he knows what the churches are going through. But couldn't we also think about how when Jesus says, I know, to this church that is being persecuted and suffering under the pressures of both religion and government? That Jesus is saying, I know, because he also suffered the same kind of pressure in his life at the end of his days when the Romans arrested him and the Jews cried out, crucify him. Don't you think Jesus, when he says, I know, is saying it because he's in a sense getting kind of right in their face. He's like, I have been through what you are going through. And this is the wonderful thing we have about Jesus, is there is nothing that we will go through. There is nothing that you will ever suffer where, where, where God wouldn't understand. We could never say to God, you just don't get it. You don't get what I'm going through. No, Jesus knows exactly what you're going through because he suffered in the ways that we'd suffer. He was tempted in the ways that we would be tempted. He has endured and he knows what it's like to go through the things that you're going through. 
So Jesus says, I know your tribulation. And that word tribulation can literally be translated crushing pressure. One of the interesting things I told you about Smyrna is that its name comes from the word myrrh, this production of this fragrant sap that they used to use for, for, for burial. But the fragrance of myrrh would only be released once it had been crushed. You had to crush it with pressure for the fragrance to come forth from its resin. Even to get it to come out from the tree from which it comes from, you had to pierce the tree for the sap to come. And then that sap would harden and then be crushed in order to release the fragrance. And Jesus is saying, I know what that's like. You know, Jesus, on the night before his death, was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Gethsemane means olive press. And even as Jesus was in the olive press there in Gethsemane, it's when the olive presses, the oil comes forth. So Jesus is saying, I know what it's like to be under pressure. I know what it's like to be persecuted, but know that when you are crushed, the fragrance comes. Know that when you are pressed, the oil comes forth. That there is a result that is going to come forth from your life when you have gone under the pressure. But don't you worry, because I died. And my body was wrapped in myrrh, but only for three days because I came to life. Jesus says, I know your poverty, but you are rich. There are two words that Jesus could have used when he said poverty. One would have meant, you know, you just didn't have much, sort of lower income. The other would be that you were in abject poverty. You were completely stripped bare and no way out. And Jesus chose that second word. And it seems that the poverty that had come upon the church in Smyrna was because that's usually where persecution hits people first. Is it hits you in the, in the financial regard, where first, you know, you might lose your job because you're a Christian, and then no one's going to do business with you anymore because you're a Christian. Then Christians can't get ahead financially because of this pressure of being in a Christian in a culture that does not accept Christ. And, and you know, I, I understand as we're reading this, we might be thinking about it in our own cultural context, in our own thing, but I hope we would also listen to these in terms, not just of ourselves, but also in terms of what's going on in other parts of the world. You know, there's, on this Sunday morning, churches that are gathering secret all across the world. And there are those who have, because of following Christ, have been completely ostracized from their families. They have lost their businesses. Or once they become a Christian, they will literally mark the outside of their building with a mark that says, this is where a Nazarite lives. This is where a Christian lives. Don't do business with them. And then they lose out financially. And this happens even to this day. And this has happened at many points throughout the history of the church. And so this is the situation the believers in Smyrna, and they were going to take a hit financially because of their confession for Christ. People will lose family, lose friends, lose finances for the sake of following Jesus. And you know, Jesus, uh, or the writer of Hebrews talked about this in chapter 10, verse 34. You might remember this scripture. 
where he commended them, saying, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourself had a better possession and an abiding one. Notice Jesus says, I know your poverty, but then, in my Bible, it's in parentheses. Maybe it's in yours as, that way too, where it says, I know your poverty, but then it says, but you are rich. And this is spoken to mean that, yes, maybe physically they were poor, but spiritually they were rich toward God. You know, there is a way in which you can be physically poor, but spiritually rich. And there is a way that can be physically rich and spiritually poor. And and I'm going to tell you, actually, money is not the factor. Rich and poor people can both be spiritually rich. See, the person, though, who is only looking to store up treasure for themselves here on earth rather than, as Jesus said, storing up treasures in heaven, that person's not rich toward God. The person who is rich toward God is the person who either in their wealth or in their poverty, again, money is not the issue. You can have a lot of money or you can have very little money and still be spiritually rich. It's whether in your wealth or in your poverty, you understand that everything comes from God and everything belongs to God. And so, You live with this generous and sacrificial life with whatever you have, whether it's a lot or a little, because that's what it means to be rich. Jesus could look at the poorest person and he can say, you are so rich. And as as people, we can look at people who have so much material wealth thinking that they are rich, but Jesus sees them and says, that person is absolutely poor. We want to be spiritually rich toward God, and that's how the church in Smyrna was. Jesus was well aware of the persecution of the church in Smyrna. It's, it's not just financial. It was their reputations were on the line. Jesus also said in verse 9, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, I shared with you about how the Jews at that time, were exempt from worshiping Caesar. And there were some professing Christians who left the Christian church and went back to the Jewish synagogue. They chose to forsake their brothers and sisters in Christ. They chose to leave Jesus behind because of the pressure of a hostile culture that wasn't accepting the church. And and like I said, the book of Hebrews warns about that, of warns from backing away from Jesus when things get hot. When pressure is coming down upon you and you're like, I'm not going to take this whole Jesus thing too seriously anymore. And that's what the church was doing. They were backing away from identifying with Christ. But for those who remained or those who were seeking to find refuge amongst the synagogue, it says that the Jews were slandering the Christians and saying false things about them on account for their belief in Jesus. And these were religious Jews who were doing this. These were Jews 
uh, ethnically and Jews religiously, but these were not Jews spiritually, as Paul would explain how it is possible to be a Jew physically but not a Jew spiritually. Romans 2, verse 18 through 19 speaks about that by saying, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. I think that that is what Jesus meant when he said, they say they are Jews and are not. Now keep in mind, listen very carefully and closely to what I'm saying here, because if we've learned anything from history, God has a special heart for his people, Israel. And you don't mess with God's people. And keep in mind that these are words that are coming from Jesus, who is the Jewish Messiah. So when Jesus called these Jews who were slandering the church in Smyrna, he calls them a synagogue of Satan. Those are some pretty extreme words coming from the mouth of our Lord. And yes, these are the words of Jesus. When Jesus was in the flesh, he even had many harsh things to say to religious Jews. Go read John chapter 8, and in that chapter, you'll see that Jesus saying to a group of unbelieving Jews, your father is the devil. So Jesus, though, is the one who has the authority to speak in this kind of way, because he knows people's hearts. He knows whether a person believes in him or does not believe in him. So Jesus is able to say, you're either love me and are for me or you're with the devil. Seems to be that Jesus sort of says it's, it's with me or it's with him. But please listen, these words, synagogue of Satan, have been used in some terrible ways against Jewish people. Do not believe for one moment that Jesus, who is the Savior of the Jews first, would say those words in a way that would later be used in an anti-Semitic way, as a way of slandering Jewish people. See, when Jesus is reviled, he doesn't revile in return. The, the Christians were being slandered, but Jesus did not use that statement, you are a synagogue of Satan, as a way to slander the Jewish people. But unfortunately, in the history of the church, this passage has been used in that way, and it ought not to be so. See, when Jesus says, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan, he's saying that the religious persecution that's coming on the church is actually being influenced and motivated by Satan himself. And wasn't that the case for Jesus when he was crucified? Yes, was it Rome who crucified Jesus? Yes, was it the Jews who conspired together, both the Pharisees and Sadducees, to put Jesus to death? Yes, it was all of these people putting Jesus to death, but it was Satan who was conspiring to crucify the Lord of glory. And when religious persecution comes upon the church of Jesus Christ, and also when persecution comes upon synagogues of Jews, know that it is motivated and influenced by Satan. Satan hates the people of God. Satan hates the Jews. Satan hates Christians. Guess what? Satan hates all people. 
And he came to slander. That's literally what his name comes from. He is the slanderer, the accuser of God's people. He's come to steal and to kill and destroy. But Satan doesn't only work through religious persecution. Satan will also be glad to work through political persecution. So long as he can hide behind those two facades, if you will, people will say, oh, no, 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 that, that, that's a religious issue. Or people will say, no, 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 that's a political issue. When in reality, Jesus knows it's a satanic issue. Ephesians 6, 12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. So Satan was working behind the scenes here in Smyrna, both from the Jews and both from Rome, as a way to persecute them. But look at what Jesus said in verse 10 about that. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Question, who throws people into prison? The government. And if Christians in Smyrna would not worship Caesar, they would be charged with rebellion against the Roman government, and they would be thrown into prison. And there are governments all around the world who will not allow Christians to worship because it is a threat to what they believe is their form of government. And Jesus said that the church, under that kind of tribulation, that kind of pressure for their faith in Jesus, he says to them, uh, he says, you do not have to fear what you are about to suffer. Oh, the church in Smyrna needed to hear those words. The church needs to hear those words from Jesus now. What are the two big things we fear as human beings, even as Christians? I, I think you'd be lying if you said you didn't fear these two things. We fear the future, and we fear suffering. And the future and suffering seems to come to a head at death. We fear the future, we fear suffering, and we fear death. And Jesus said, something's about to happen to some of you. That's the first fear, the future. Something is about to happen. I know what it is, but you don't know what it is yet because you don't know the future. I do. But Jesus gets ahead of that fear. He says, I am the first and the last. He's saying, I know the future. I know what's about to happen to some of you. And, and I know that what's going to come. And I'm, I'm even going to get ahead of it. I'm going to tell you just as a way so you know that I'm here with you. Some of you will be thrown into prison. But look, isn't that something to fear? Not if you fear the Lord. You trust that he knows the future. Not if you understand your Bible, which clearly tells us Christians will suffer. Look, guys, bad things happen to Christians. I mean, do you really believe good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people? Is that really the 
philosophy with which we live by? No. (laughs) No, the scriptures are abundantly clear that if you are a follower of Jesus, you will suffer for his name's sake. Jesus said, you can't even be my disciple unless you suffer with me. I don't know what Bible you're reading if you think that the Christian life is a pain-free, suffering-free, persecution-free life. Now, we're not going to go looking for it. Certainly, we don't want to just go, you know, I didn't say this for a service, but come on, it's Super Bowl Sunday. Like, I'm not giving you guys a hard guilt trip. Like, you can't go eat, like, chips and dip and watch some football. Enjoy it. Come on. I won't say who I'm rooting for. I know who Michael's rooting for in the back there. So, but look, it doesn't mean we can't enjoy good things. But it just means that if we're actually being really serious about being followers of Jesus Christ, if we're really living for his kingdom, we should expect in some degree this pressure that is going to come upon us in this world for living for Jesus. So look, when Christians get thrown into prison because of political persecution, which by the way, scriptures tells us everywhere to pray for the saints that are imprisoned, and we know that right now on this Lord's Day that there are people all over the world who are in prison clutching on to perhaps one page of scripture that they're memorizing or whatever they have, it's just because it's hidden in their heart. And we're called to pray for our brothers and sisters in chains. And Christians who identify with Jesus as Lord, realize that when governments come upon you that are going to tell you your allegiance must be to us over your Lord in his kingdom, we say no. You see, when the laws of the land come against our obedience to Jesus, we know from the example of the apostles in the book of Acts that it is better to obey God rather than man. But let's not miss who is really behind that because when governments are hostile towards the church, when Christians are wrongfully persecuted for their faith in Jesus, Jesus says, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Jesus believed in a literal devil. That's what he's talking about. The devil, Satan, is going to that serpent of old, is going to throw you into prison. I think we get the point. There's something far more sinister at work when persecution comes upon the church, whether it be religious, whether it be political, or any other way, we understand the devil is working, and if you can't see that, you are blind. And if if these words of Jesus are not coming into your soul, and it's like, sounds like... You don't have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying. And the devil is happy to keep people blind and deaf to his works. Especially if he can keep people blind and deaf to the works of God. But we're not going to be that kind of church. See, if you are blind and deaf to everything that I've said up until this point, the scriptures tell us so wonderfully That when the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ shines upon your heart and you see Jesus, it's like a veil is lifted. 
And Paul talks in Corinthians about how spiritual things must be spiritually discerned. And you're not going to have even the slightest clue as to what is coming out of my mouth right now unless the Spirit of God dwells in you. But listen, if the Spirit of God dwells in you, you're hearing these words, aren't you? And, and if Jesus has awakened you to the truth of his gospel, you are seeing how it is not that far from possibility in our world that we as a church may suffer persecution of this kind. Let us not be so blind and deaf to the things of God. Wake up, church, is what Jesus is saying to us, I believe. You know, there's this temptation that was brought to the church by Satan, and he's bringing this temptation to us today, where he's saying to you, don't take this whole Jesus stuff too seriously now. Everyone's got their own God. I can see Pastor Daniel's really excited about Jesus and him alone. But... He can worship Apollo. She can worship Aphrodite. We can all sort of pay homage to Caesar as Lord. Just offer a pinch of incense at the altar of Caesar and say, Caesar's Lord. You, you can get your certificate of worship, and then you can go worship Jesus however you wish. And you see, what Satan does is he tempts us to compromise for the sake of tolerance. The church has always been under that pressure to compromise in our worship of Jesus, to compromise in our confession of faith, being selective in our obedience to the lordship of Jesus, all for some sort of sense of, of tolerance. But can I just say, church, let's be very careful what altars we might be offering a pinch of incense to and saying, yeah, I believe Jesus is Lord, but who cares if I say uh, Caesar is Lord? Who cares if I just a little pinch there, a little pinch there, you pinch here, you pinch here, I, and I'll go worship Jesus, but eh, go pinch whatever altar you want. And this is what Jesus is saying to us. He's saying, I'm the first and the last. I'm the one who died and rose again. I'm the Lord of lords and the King of kings. There is no one else besides me. There's no other name under heaven by which man must be saved. It's Jesus Christ. And every single one of us is going to die. And I know, if you don't know Jesus, you fear death. And when you die, you will stand before the judgment seat of the, you'll stand before God as your judge. It's appointed for man to die once, and then comes judgment. What are you going to hear on, those day, on that day when you stand before God as your judge? I know what I'll hear, because I hear the words of verse 10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil's about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. So Jesus forewarned the church that there would be suffering, and he's commending them for their steadfastness in tribulation. And, and you know, Whatever the devil can do to us, which it seems here he can do a lot. He can throw people into prison. He can cause slander to come upon the church. He can do certain things. He has some authority, but only to the extent of which God allows. There's this 
moment in the ministry of Jesus, Luke chapter 22, verse 31 to 32, where Jesus says to Peter, and he uses his, you know, his name, Simon. That's when he really wanted to talk to him. You know, he said Simon, not Peter. And he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. And you're like, Peter's like, whoa, Jesus, like, hold up. What are you talking about? Satan can have me, demanded to have me. You're going to tell him, right? Like, no, you can't have my Simon, my little Peter boy here. You can't have him. And you almost think that at that moment, Peter would have been objecting. What do you mean Satan has demanded to have me? And Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. And you're kind of like, Jesus, you're going to tell him, like, no, you can't have him. You can't sift him like wheat, right? Have you read Job? And he's like, Satan's demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. You see, Peter actually would be sifted like wheat by Satan, warming his hands by the enemy's fire. And when a little slave girl came and said, hey, aren't you one of those disciples of Jesus? He says, I don't even freaking know the guy. And then he turned back and he strengthened the brothers. James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Jesus would allow his followers in Smyrna to be tested, but he came to them beforehand and said, You don't need to fear. Even if some of you are thrown in prison, even if some of you are put to death and even martyred for your faith, do not fear, I am the first and the last, the one who came to life. There's this testimony of one of the early church fathers by the name of Polycarp. Fascinating, you can read so much about him. Polycarp was actually a disciple of John the Apostle who wrote this letter He was an early church father. He was actually the pastor of the church in Smyrna, coincidentally enough. And Polycarp was burned at the stake because he would not say those three words, Caesar is Lord, because he had one Lord. And so when they brought him into the arena where you know, they were giving Christians over to be uh, eaten by beasts, by lions, and persecuted, and they sort of turned it into a game show, they said, all right, Polycarp, here's your opportunity. And, and they were gathering fire and made a big bonfire. It said that even the Jews were uh, zealously gathering wood to procure the fire. And, and so Polycarp is there, and they're just saying, just Polycarp, say those words, Caesar is Lord. Just a little pinch on the altar, you know, Polycarp, come on. Like, what's the big deal? And Polycarp said this to his persecutors. He says, for 86 years I have served my king, and he has been faithful to me. Why should I deny him now? You asked me to forsake my God for a fire that burns less than an hour? 
you are in danger of a fire that burns forever. Why do you wait? Do what you will. I can only imagine that Polycarp had these words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, hidden within his heart, where Jesus said, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus says in verse 10 that for 10 days you will have tribulation. Like all the numbers in Revelation, people have tried to determine what could this number 10 mean. Some have said that it's the 10 Caesars that reigned over Rome from 54 AD with Caesar Nero to 310 AD with Diocletian. And maybe it means that, maybe it doesn't. But whatever it means, it could just mean 10 days. And whatever it is, it's just a short period of time. In light of Jesus being the first and the last, 10 days is nothing in comparison to eternity. This light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. And so Jesus can come to this church and he can speak directly to them and look at them and he can just say, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He's just saying, continue to confess me as Lord. Continue to hold up under the pressure. Hear my words. Keep my words. Be faithful unto death. And do not fear death because I have taken away the sting of death. I am he who died and came to life. And if you are in me and I am in you, then that means that you have died with me and you are risen with me. So that when you die, you don't really die. You actually live forever. And James chapter 1, verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised for those who love him. And the crown of life would be given to that church in Smyrna, a crown that was so much better than the crown that sat over that city with all those other gods, uh, something so much better, uh, even having bared up under the religious and political persecution. This is a church that stayed faithful no matter what crushing pressure the devil brought their way. They would resist the devil. They would have their faith tested even unto death. Well, Jesus finishes this letter to Smyrna with a promise in verse 11. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Jesus has spoken to us today through his word, and I pray that he would have spoken to you individually and kind of already alluded to this, but Out of all of the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, we want to look at every single one and we want to consider how they might speak to us as a church here in 2024, Palos Verdes, California, on Super Bowl Sunday. How does it might speak to us? And... I'd say out of all seven churches, this is probably the church that we're the least like. Look, I, I don't know what kind of pressures you face in your life for being a Christian. And I understand that in this world, it seems that it's becoming harder and harder for Christians to bear up under the pressure to remain faithful to Jesus. 
I think it's only going to get harder unless the Spirit just blows like the wind through our land. But look, in examining our lives today, we, we must be willing to ask this question. What if? What if I was persecuted to the point of death for my faith in Jesus? What if I were thrown into prison for 10 days for my faith in Jesus? I've had to ask this question. If there was much more governmental pressure where I could be arrested for giving this sermon today, would I still give this sermon? Or would I choose to compromise my confession and my obedience to Jesus? Will we be faithful to Jesus under whatever pressures we might face, whether it be from, from the world, from politics, from religions, from, from, from wherever you have it, will we remain faithful to Jesus until we die? Doesn't mean you're gonna die a martyr's death, but every one of us is gonna die. And are we going to live faithful lives where we enter eternity and we will hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. You know, Jesus promised that those who conquer will not be hurt by the second death. You can go read in Revelation chapter 20 and 21 what the second death is. And if I can just say simply, it's hell. And... What Satan can do in 10 days, which is throw some people into prison, we know from Revelation that Satan will be bound for a thousand years in a bottomless pit. And during that thousand years, we will rule and reign with Christ. And so 10 days in prison for a thousand years to reign with Christ, not even worthy to compare. It's a short time. It reminds me of what Polycarp said. You have asked to have me forsake God for a fire that burns less than an hour, you're in danger of a fire that never dies. And so the fear of the Lord drives out all other fears. We understand we do not need to fear what man can do to us. We don't need to fear what the devil can do to us. We don't even need to fear what we might do to ourselves. Because if we have the word of God and the spirit of God and the love of Jesus motivating us, we can be faithful unto death. And Jesus told us, we remember these words in Luke's, or John 16, 13. I have said these things to you. Jesus has said all of these words to us today. If you've had ears to hear, he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your words that are life to us. And I pray, Lord, that we would be faithful in life and death, that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so we thank you for this morning. We pray for the persecuted church around the world. We ask, Lord, that you would strengthen your church. And Lord, strengthen us now, Lord. Thank you for the things you've brought us through. Thank you for the things that you will help us in today. And whatever may come in the future, we will not fear because we know we are in your right hand. Lord, we love you, Jesus. Thank you for dying for us and being raised so that when we die, we will live forever with you. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together, church, and finish with one final song.